Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. I'm your host and creator, Jimmy, and each week I make a mixtape combining my love of 80s music with memories of growing up in a San Francisco Bay Area record shop. The 1980s will forever hold a special place in my heart, and I'm excited to share the memories and the music with those who experience life during the decade, as well as anyone curious to learn what it was like to be there, but weren't. So whether you're a returning or a first-time listener, I invite you to relax and reminisce as I create a themed musical playlist comprised of artists and songs from the greatest decade to live in and live through, the 1980s. Nineteen eighty four was the year when I really started consciously collecting movie soundtracks. Up to that point, I had several vinyl albums of music from films like Grease, Saturday Night Fever, The Wiz, Fame, Xanadu, and Flashdance in my collection. But as the year progressed, I found I nearly tripled my intake of film soundtracks due to the massive appeal of the music and the movies that they came from. Some of the biggest released during nineteen eighty four were Beverly Hills Cop, Footloose, Purple Rain, The Woman in Red, Break In, Hard to Hold, This is Spinal Tap, and the obscure but extremely underrated Repo Man. In addition, I had numerous 45 singles from songs released from films during the year, including Sex Crime by The Eurythmics from the film 1984, which went, Sex Crime, huh. And the title song, The Never Ending Story by Lamal. The never ending story. Oh, 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 oh. Never ending story. And Together in Electric Dreams by Phil Oakey and Giorgio Moroder from the film of the same name. That went, uh, we'll always be together, together in electric dreams. (laughs) That was from the film of the same name. And I saw that film with my friends Joey and Kim during the summer of 1984. If you're unfamiliar with the movie Electric Dreams, The plot revolves around a love triangle involving a nerdy man, a beautiful woman, and an actual computer. Of course, a movie like this played at Cinema 5. (sighs) Initially, we had gone there to see The Last Starfighter, but we got to the theater late and missed the starting time, and rather than wait for the next showing or hop back on our bikes and head elsewhere, we decided to see whatever was close to starting. Knowing nothing about the film ahead of time, we assumed from the title that it was going to be similar to other recently released movies that were capitalizing on the breakdancing phenomenon like Break In and Beat Street. Turns out Electric Dreams had more of a horny hard drive with insatiable infatuation for a human woman than pop-in, lock-in, and parachute pants. 1984 was the year that movie soundtracks really began to make their significant impact within the music scene. During this time, singers new to the recording industry, as well as established artists and bands, saw successes by being included on a film soundtrack. Though this wasn't a new practice or process, something about this particular year led to widespread airplay, record sales, and placement on the singles chart more than any time before for many musicians. 
For newer singers who were unfamiliar to music-minded consumers and had no established fan base, being included on a soundtrack was a chance to gain wider exposure to showcase their sound, their style, and image. It was also a way for the record companies to test audiences and see if the artists flourished or fizzled with listeners in order to decide on promoting or dropping them from the label. For an established act, especially those from the pop and rock scene of the 1970s, being included on a soundtrack helped garner interest in their earlier work. If a singer or a band scored a well-received and well-played song on the radio or the chart, it would then lead listeners to scan through the stacks of records and tape bins in order to seek out their other material. Along with popular dance, new wave, and pop rock music dominating the airwaves at the time, it wasn't uncommon to hear a song from or featured in a film on the radio. These songs gained momentum and took on a life of their own in some cases becoming more successful than the film that they were featured in. Seven of the 20 songs that peaked at the number one spot on the U.S. Hot 100 Singles Chart in 1984 were from movies. This started with Footloose by Kenny Loggins, Against All Odds by Phil Collins, Let's Hear It For The Boy by Denise Williams, When Doves Cry and Let's Go Crazy by Prince, Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr., and I Just Called To Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder. Incidentally, When Doves Cry by Prince was also the year-end number one single of 1984, according to Billboard magazine. Following this year, films like Back to the Future, Breakfast Club, and Dirty Dancing all saw massive success with their soundtracks, singles released, and their sales. The movie soundtrack would continue to see success in the 1990s and early 2000s, before simply becoming collections of catchy late 20th century pop songs playing on listeners' fond nostalgia for different times, featured in films. Last week, I shared my own subjective perspective on artists who contributed memorable songs to movies released during 1982 and 1983 in my 22nd episode titled Movie Soundtracks 82-83. to That episode, along with many others, are currently available to download and listen to on a variety of platforms, including Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, with new episodes available every Wednesday. You can also reach out to me by email at jeetmusicpodcast at gmail.com. My father used to say that practice makes progress, and I want to acknowledge the generous support and positive encouragement I continue to receive from listeners. I'd like to give a humble and heartfelt thank you for your support in the progression of this podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to hit follow, subscribe, and like. I'd also greatly appreciate any five-star ratings and or reviews, and please tell your friends, family, and anyone in between about Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. Again, thank you for listening, sharing, and supporting as I make mixtapes, talk about 80s music, and the memories associated with them for everyone to enjoy. Our theme for November is movie soundtracks of the 1980s. Each playlist of the month will include songs released in sequential order by year during the decade. We continue this week with movie soundtracks of 1984 through 1985. Of all the decades, the 1980s is unquestionably at the forefront of when the entertainment industry began to heavily explore the potential benefits of cross-promoting their products, specifically films and music. It was the beginning of the visual age, and image and imagery were heavily marketed in everything to everyone. 
MTV played music videos that were essentially three to four minute movie trailers with scenes and frames from the film designed to attract audiences into the theater and also to buy the record. The 1980s were such a revolutionary time for innovations in music production and sound engineering, which greatly impacted and influenced how artists created music. The rise of electronic synths spawned new genres like techno, house, and new wave, while R&B, hip-hop, and rap became more commonplace on the radio, on the record shelves, and on the charts. Building from the successes seen during the previous decade, 80s films began to incorporate songs showcasing these musical progressions onto their soundtracks. More than ever before, pop songs were being utilized within films as more than just background noise or filler sounds for frames. They were used front and center to help a film succeed by driving its story, supporting the scenes, and developing the characters. As a result, many 80s songs are forever linked to the movie that they were first featured in. Our playlist includes songs from artists featured in films during the 1980s. The songs serve as timestamps to remind us about moments in our lives we saw reflected on a screen and what we enjoyed, loved, or identified with most about the movies we saw. While some movies remain strong within pop culture long after their release and others fade from popularity, their songs can continue enduring and entertaining with every new generation that discovers them. So let's grab our proton packs and gas up the ectomobile. Let's practice our crane kicks as we compete at the All-Valley Karate Tournament. And let's prepare to pop and lock in a winner-takes-all dance battle as we make a mixtape. I've unwrapped another 60-minute blank Maxell audio cassette tape and placed it into the left side of the dual cassette tape player of my stereo system. I've pressed down the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to make another memorable mixtape filled with extraordinary 80s music. Out of respect for the copyright and creative process by the artists involved in all songs mentioned in the podcast, no music clips will be included. Instead, I'll use my commentary about the songs and encourage the listener to support music sites by authentically acquiring access to them. I'm ready to start site A of the mixtape, which includes selections released during the year 1984 and have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette and begin our playlist with the first song. Track 1 was released in January of 1984 and peaked at number 1 for three weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Kenny Loggins, and the song is Footloose. In 1984, there were nearly 500 albums released by pop and rock singers, with many of them making a significant impact in music, as well as achieving worldwide success for the artists involved. Some of these albums included Wham's Make It Big, Tina Turner's Private Dancer, Van Halen's 1984, Madonna's Like a Virgin, and The Cars' Heartbeat City, just to name a few. The year also saw the debut release of albums by artists as diverse as The Bangles, Run DMC, Sade, and Bon Jovi. While plenty of the nearly 500 albums that were released during the year became successful, only five of them managed to peak at number one on the U.S. Billboard Top 200 Albums chart during the year. Only five, and two of them were actually movie soundtracks. It really was an unprecedented time for music, with so much creativity, craftsmanship, and talent on display, and the unbelievable artistry that went into the music of the time. 
Now, kicking off the year was the album Thriller by Michael Jackson, which added an additional 15 weeks to its run after spending 22 weeks on top the previous year. Then came the soundtrack to the movie Footloose, which knocked Thriller out of the top spot and held on to it for another 10 weeks. Next, Sports by Huey Lewis and the News made it to the top for one week before Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen took it over for four weeks. The last album of the year to hold the number one spot was the soundtrack Purple Rain by Prince, which held it for the last 22 weeks of 1984. Again, this was such an amazing time to be around, just to turn on the radio, to watch MTV, or browse through the shelves of the record shop, and discover so many diverse sounds and songs and artists like no other time before or since. While the soundtrack to the movie Footloose had a prominent showing on the chart, its singles from the film also dominated the airwaves, the music video channels, and the singles chart, with six of the nine songs from the soundtrack becoming top 40 hits. In addition to the song Footloose, there was also I'm Free, Heaven Helps the Man by Kenny Loggins, Let's Hear It for the Boy by Denise Williams, Dancing in the Sheets by Shalimar, Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler, and the ballad Almost Paradise by Mike Reno and Ann Wilson. The soundtrack itself was sort of its own mixtape, as the songs blended different styles like pop and funk, rock, dance, and R&B styles to create one of the more impressive soundtracks of the decade. Prior to being crowned the king of the 80s movie soundtracks, singer-songwriter Kenny Loggins was primarily known for his soft rock songs like Danny's Song and Your Mama Don't Dance with his duo partner Jim Messina. After the pairing dissolved in the late 70s, he went solo and saw success with a handful of hits like Celebrate Me Home, his duet with Stevie Nicks called Whenever I Call You Friend, and the song This Is It. Kenny Loggins then proved he could write and record a successful film theme song when the song I'm Alright from the 1980 comedy Caddyshack became a top 10 chart hit. Soon after, the major movie studios reached out, wanting him to do the same for their upcoming films. The film Footloose tells the story of a teen named Wren, played by Kevin Bacon, who relocates from a metropolitan city to a smaller Midwest town, only to discover that the town has made rock music and dancing illegal. He soon finds himself at odds with the town's most oppressive authority, Reverend Shaw, played by John Lithgow. Funnily enough, the song is not about recapping the plot of the movie, but instead about using dance as an escape or a way to release built-up anger or tension from within oneself. The song starts, Been working so hard. I'm punching my card. Eight hours for what? Oh, tell me what I got. I've got this feeling that time's just holding me down. I'll hit the ceiling or else I'll tear up this town. The song Footloose succeeds at doing exactly what its intended purpose is designed to do, which is to make the listener get up and dance, thanks in part to its music production rooted in an 80s take on 50s rockabilly. The infectious energy generated by the song's up-tempo pace enthusiastically encourages you to move your whole body in time with the catchy beats. The moment the song starts with its twangy guitar and the jangly drums, my toes start tapping, my head begins bopping along, and my hips and arms are all shaking and swinging from side to side. It's nearly impossible to sit still when this song comes on, especially when its chorus sufficiently plants itself into your brain and refuses to budge. Now I gotta cut loose, foot loose, kick off the Sunday shoes, please, Louise. Pull me off of my knees. Jack, get back. Come on before we crack. Lose, 
your blues. Everybody cut foot loose. The song Footloose reminds me of another song, actually a couple of songs. It reminds me of Celebration by Cool and the Gang and September by Earth, Wind and Fire, which are also about just having a really good time. Just dance on the night away by surrounding yourself with people who are all out to do the same thing. The song is used in the opening of the film while several shots of different pairs of feet wearing tennis shoes, penny loafers, high heels, boots, high heels and socks, a fashion no, and other assorted footwear dance unabashedly. Even though these shots are only from the knees down, you can just imagine the joyful smiles across the faces of the people all dancing like no one's watching. The song also returns to close the movie after the town's teens are finally permitted to hold their prom, and then Kevin Bacon's character, Ren, enters into the somber room filled with his peers and exclaims, I thought this was a party. Let's dance! Followed by the song's opening guitar riffs as guys in tuxes and girls in taffeta dresses twirl and twist together having the time of their lives. As Footloose by Kenny Loggins ends, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 2 was released in February of 1984 and peaked at number 1 for three weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Phil Collins, and the song is Against All Odds. Take a look at me now. The 1980s were filled with many talented songwriters, artists, and musicians who used amazing music and lyrics to create songs that express the emotions and experiences associated with the subject of love. Growing up, I was fortunate enough to hear and discover many songs about love and relationships sung from an adult's perspective. There were songs that were written and recorded about people wishing that they could meet the special someone to share their lives with or songs with lyrics about finding and falling in love with another person, as well as those about celebrating the joy of everlasting love. Now, in addition, there were also plenty of songs created that explored the pain of losing love, the heartache behind falling out of it, and ones about loving someone enough to walk away from them and let them go. The decade was filled with many diverse singers who expressed vulnerability in the lyrics of relatable songs while conveying honest and often raw emotions within their vocals. The natural swell of elation and passion for another person is evident in songs like Sweet Love by Anita Baker, You're the Inspiration by Chicago, and Cherish by Cool and the Gang, just to name a few. Now in contrast, the anguish and heartbreak when love doesn't last or work out as expected can be heard in songs like All Cried Out by Lisa Lisa and Colt Jam, Didn't We Almost Have It All by Whitney Houston, and The Winner Takes It All by ABBA. Whether they were slower paced, mid-tempo, or power ballads, many love songs created during the 80s are considered timeless to many people today, including myself. One of the many reasons they resonate so well are the polished vocals by mature singers that focused on delivering the emotional lyrics within the song. Each note, each word, and every lyric was sung by someone with a lived-in understanding of what experiencing love, romance, or relationships meant. Be they on the height of cloud nine or crashing right back down to earth, these singers had lived the lyrics that listeners were hearing. They were crying out excitedly about how they never knew love like this before, or singing with sadness about how you don't know what you got till it's gone. 
In addition to the lyrics, the music production typically involved well-crafted instrumentation from pianos, strings, guitars, and brass instruments, including the unsung hero instrument of the decade, the saxophone. 80s love songs are timeless, and they're still played today because they were well-written, well-crafted, and purposefully sung with a maturity and a clarity that captured a simpler time about a subject that can be quite complicated itself. The song Against All Odds, written and performed by English singer-songwriter Phil Collins, is an intoxicatingly rich ballad that chronicles the devastation divorce can have on a person. Though the song was used in the 1984 romantic drama film of the same name, it was actually written by Phil Collins as a reflection on his divorce. The song begins with a wistful piano melody, melody which frames the fragility in his voice as he asks, How can I just let you walk away? just let you leave without a trace. When I stand here taking every breath with you, you're the only one who really knew me at all. After these lyrics with just the piano melody playing, there's a slight pause, which feels like he's waiting for a reply, but also knowing one isn't going to come. It's the briefest of pauses, but it establishes the sorrowful sentiment of the situation that he's seeing from his perspective. He then demonstrates a rich and controlled vocal that never feels like it's overwrought or forced. The lyrics capture the loss of their love, but also the loss of the intimacy that they once shared, as he then asks, How can you just walk away from me, when all I can do is watch you leave? Because we've shared the laughter and the pain, and even shared the tears. You're the only one who really knew me at all. The lyrics are raw and heartfelt. And they conjure images up of a couple who's experienced the up and downs of a lifetime together, but that are unable to continue as one. As a result, with the song being sung from a man's perspective, he's left rationalizing the reality of the end of their shared love. For nearly half of the song, Against All Odds, it uses just the pure ache and sadness within Phil Collins' voice effectively accompanied by a slow tempo from the piano. After the first chorus, though, he's then supported by his own unmistakably masterful drumming as the song and his vocals begin to build. One of the many things I appreciate about the song is the clarity in Phil Collins' delivery and his tone. He sounds helpless but hopeful during the first half of the song before his anguish envelops him and he delivers a determined, if desperate, gut-wrenching plea in the song's final minute. You can absolutely hear and feel the raw and honest sadness anger and regret in his vocals during the chorus so take a look at me now well there's just an empty space and there's nothing left here to remind me just the memory of your face now take a look at me now because there's just an empty space but to wait for you is all i can do and that's what i've got to face take a good look at me now because i'll still be standing here and you coming back to me is against all odds it's the chance i've got to take there's something about the way that he enunciates and really punches into the words, allowing the emotion to take a hold of him, especially in those last two verses that always stops me when listening to the song. And I, I rewind it at least four or five times because I absolutely have to hear it again. I've always loved how he takes his time stretching out the words against all odds in that last lyric. When he says it earlier in the song, he sings against the odds almost as though he believes there's still hope, so he's not putting serious value into it. But at the end, when he's left emotionally empty and exhausted, he realizes his hope for reconciliation will never become a reality. 
it's sinking in that he isn't going to be able to make her turn around or make her take a look at him at all. As Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now by Phil Collins ends, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 3 was released in April of 1984 and peaked at number 6 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Dan Hartman, and the song is I Can Dream About You. I remember riding bikes to the Southland Cinema with my friends David and Jason from next door on a Saturday afternoon in June to see Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Only when we got there, it was sold out for the next several showings that day. Believe it or not, it was only showing on one screen because I guess at the time, theaters and movie studios hadn't yet caught on to the idea of making more profits by showing the same movie on multiple screens yet. Since we'd already locked up our bikes and planned to see a movie anyway, we stood at the box office window and scanned the names of the movies and discussed what was available to see soon. We'd already seen Footloose, Romance in the Stone, Splash, and Breakin', which had all been out for several months by that point. This was also at a time when it wasn't unheard of for a film to stay in the theater for months, and even with some of them playing for almost up to a year. This way there wasn't a large gap between the time that it left the movie theater and when it became available to rent or buy on video. I can remember films like E.T., Back to the Future, and Rocky IV played at the theaters for what seemed like forever, and every time we'd drive by the theater in the Dodge Dart, I'd read the movie marquee and say, That's still playing? The only other movie that was playing at the Southland Cinema was something called Streets of Fire that had opened the same weekend as Star Trek III. None of us knew what it was about, and the film's poster made it look abstract and just strange enough that we decided to see it. Plus, it was the only movie that was about to start. Fast forward to two hours later with us leaving the theater and riding our bikes back home while discussing the movie. Going in blindly didn't work for everyone, as both David and Jason didn't like it, and David kept insisting that it was copying a lot from Blade Runner and Escape from New York. I did sort of agree with him that the scenery and situations and some of the dialogue reminded me of those films, but I disagree that it was a bad movie. While I enjoyed the look of the film and its characters, as well as the love story between actors Michael Perre and Diane Lane, it was the music that really sold the film to me. I remember sitting in my seat watching in awe at the musical performances of the songs Nowhere Fast and the incredibly infectious Tonight is What It Means to Be Young by the fictional band Ellen Aim and the Attackers. The scenes were set up like rock concerts with the crowd watching Diane Lane as Ellen Aim perform on stage with smoke, neon, choreography, and everything else that could add to the bombastic nature of those songs. There was also an amazing performance by the fictional R&B group The Sorrells, played by four actors who danced and glided across stage all in sync with meticulous moves while singing the song I Can Dream About You. While singing isn't actually accurate, as none of them actually sang the song, and an even bigger surprise to me was that Diane Lang didn't sing anything either. Come to find out when I acquired the soundtrack to the movie, that a studio group had been created called Fire Inc. with a popular background singer named Holly Sherwood singing the lead on the songs while Diane Lane mimed and lip-synced them for the film. I didn't care though because the songs were great and the performances in the film were probably my favorite of the whole movie. In addition, while the fantastic dance moves during the performance of I Can Dream About You belonged to the actors portraying the Sorrells, the vocals on the song did not. Singer-songwriter Dan Hartman achieved success during the 1970s as a member of the rock band The Edgar Winter Group, 
known for their songs Frankenstein and Free Ride, the latter written by Dan Hartman. In addition, he also saw success as a solo artist later in the decade with the dance song Instant Replay. The song I Can Dream About You was originally written by him for Daryl Hall and John Oates, but they turned it down because at the time, their album Big Bam Boom was nearly finished and there wasn't room for any more songs. Eventually, though, Hall and Oates would cover the song in the early 2000s, and man, does it suit Daryl Hall's voice. I can dream about you if I can hold you tonight. I can dream about you, you know how to hold me just right. Now, replace whatever it was that I just did with actually Daryl Hall's voice, and fantastic. It's really too bad we didn't get a version on the same album as the song Out of Touch two decades earlier, but at least we got it. When Hall & Oates turned it down, Dan Hartman decided to record the song himself for the movie soundtrack, as well as for his own upcoming album, and he also agreed to have the song used in the movie. What wound up happening was, instead of using Dan Hartman's version for the scene with the Sorrells, the studio hired a male soul singer named Winston Ford to sing the song, and he sounds nearly identical to Dan Hartman. When the studio wanted to then release the song as a single to radio using Winston Ford's voice, lawyers got involved, and the outcome was that the song as originally written and recorded by Dan Hartman would be the only version released. Besides, his is the only version that was commercially released and the only one nearly everybody familiar with the song knows. Now, you can also watch the Sorrells performing the song while hearing the subtle differences and similarities with Winston Ford's voice, or you can also listen to Hall & Oates' version. But all in all, while they're all great, I still prefer Dan Hartman's. It's the one that I knew and the one that I grew up listening to and enjoying. The song itself is great. It's an early 60s R&B doo-wop infused song with an 80s synth pop. It has a charismatic music production, and it sounds like it's just floating along in, I don't know, a haze of synthesizers and drum machine beats, but it also has that throwback feel to it from the 50s and the 60s. Though I like all of the versions that are sung, I do prefer Dan Hartman, especially the way that he breaks up the syllables of the words when he's singing in the verses. My favorite is during the second verse when he sings, Moving sidewalks I don't see under my feet Climbing up from the pain in my heart Cause it's you that I need It's just such a great song. It's just such a great build up in those verses too with his voice. After the song, Dan Hartman had another song make it into the top 40 before he primarily focused on songwriting for other artists and left behind the singing and the legalities of the music business. As I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 4 was released in July of 1984 and peaked at number 1 for two weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Prince, and the song is Let's Go Crazy. I was the same age as Tipper Gore's 11-year-old daughter when she supposedly acquired Prince's Purple Rain album and heard the track Darling Nikki. Allegedly, this caused her mother to recoil in such horror at its graphic lyrics that she and several other prominent wives of Washington senators at the time founded the Parents Music Resource Center in an attempt to enforce their opinions of what they suggested was tasteless or inappropriate music being produced. 
The directive behind the PMRC was misguided from the start and more focused on political platitudes than actually preventing the youth of the 80s from engaging in sex, violence, drug use, foul language, or flirtations with the occult as they suggested would happen from listening to these songs. They simply served as a distraction from real issues that were plaguing the presidency at the time, which were more prominent and pressing than one woman's discomfort at having to possibly parent her child by having a conversation about the lyrics she'd heard in the song. My experience with Prince and Purple Rain was quite different than Tipper Gore's daughter when I saw the movie with my sister's boyfriend turned husband, Anthony, at the Festival Theater during the summer of 1984. He, in fact, had already seen the movie several times with my sister, his own brother, his friends, by himself, before he eventually took me. I've known Anthony for over 40 years, and some of my earliest memories of him involve how much of a Prince fan he was. He came into my sister's life when they met in high school, and after getting to know each other, they started spending more and more time together. When he started coming into the shop, especially with her, my parents and I realized that they were more than just friends. Eventually, she introduced him as her boyfriend, and he was welcomed into our family because of how outgoing, interesting, and wonderful he was in general, but also with my sister Sherry. He also loved listening to and talking about music, which instantly ingratiated himself to my father, who was just as passionate about it as well. They talk about the bands and the singers of the time, and also debate musical styles and songs while my sister and I would observe and occasionally add to the conversation. I remember him always enthusiastically talking about how much of a genius Prince was and the musical breakthroughs that he was making rather than trying to follow other trends like other artists did. He'd comment on how Prince produced his own music and often played all of the instruments on his recordings and songs and that he could play any musical style like pop or rock, funk, soul, jazz, new wave, or R&B and also incorporate his own uniquely crafted sounds and styles into the music. The film Purple Rain started with Prince on stage in a silhouette with a purple light behind him and smoke in the air. He barely moves as Let's Go Crazy opens the film with a church organ playing while the song's opening lyrics are served sermon style. The song opens with, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word life, it means forever and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else, the afterworld. When he's done sermonizing and the song's beat kicks in with the drums and guitar riffs sending the song into the stratosphere, I watched as an audience full of people surrounding me in the theater began clapping and singing along with the verses. I remember my heart beating really fast during the song as I tapped my feet and swayed my body from side to side in my seat while enthusiastically clapping along all the way to the end when the amazing guitar solo finishes the song. About 10 minutes had passed since the opening of the movie, but it felt like 10 seconds because it was so quick and there was so much energy in the room, and I wasn't quite sure what i just witnessed. I was sure, though, that I had just become a fan of Prince. While most listeners thought that the song was about breaking out of the monotony of life and going wild for a moment, Let's Go Crazy was actually much deeper. Prince stated that he wrote the song about God, the devil, and the afterlife, which are evident in the lyrics during the stylized sermon that opens the song. Some of the lyrics include, because in this life, things are much harder than in the afterworld. In this life, you're on your own. And if the elevator tries to bring you down, go crazy, punch a higher floor. The devil is metaphorically referenced as the de-elevator trying to de-elevate a person or bring them down to hell for eternity. 
And Prince is urging them to rail against this and do the opposite, which is to elevate themselves toward a higher salvation. Punch a higher floor. Don't let the elevator bring you down. He's telling listeners to seek a higher power or spirit or God to guide them. At the time, many artists used metaphors in their lyrics to address topics like war, religion, or sex in order to be played on the radio and not alienate or offend anyone, like the founders of the PMRC, who were unwilling to address and answer any questions that their children might have from listening to music. There were at least three copies of Prince's Purple Rain album in our household in the summer of 1984. I had one, my older sister Sherry had one, and our parents also had a copy, and I don't remember anyone ever becoming so outraged or incensed at the songs or the content on the album that they felt it necessary to make a federal case out of it. In fact, I can remember once dancing in the living room to the songs Baby I'm a Star and I Would Die For You, as my mother did the same while preparing dinner in our kitchen. There isn't a musical equivalent to Prince now, and there certainly wasn't one back then. We're all excited, but we don't know why. Maybe it's cause we're all gonna die. And when we do, what's it all for? You better live now before the Grim Reaper comes knocking on your door. Tell me, are we gonna let the elevator break us down? Oh no, let's go, let's go crazy. Let's get nuts. Look for the purple banana till they put us in the truck. Let's go. As Let's Go Crazy by Prince ends with that incredible guitar solo, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the final track for side A. Track 5 was released in December of 1984 and peaked at number 2 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Glenn Fry, and the song is The Heat Is On. The sound of American rock band The Eagles has been described by some as being laid-back rock, While some may also identify it as country rock, and others might describe it as California rock, which was a term used to categorize the type of carefree, softer sounds or sunny, optimistic music that was captured by several artists like America or Carly Simon or the Beach Boys during the 1970s. Regardless of how listeners term their music, the Eagles explored different musical styles and production throughout the 1970s, from rock and roll sounds to country and folk all while remaining rooted in rock music. During the 70s, the band released six albums, with three of them peaking at the top of the U.S. Billboard Top 200 Albums chart. In addition, of the nearly two dozen singles released, five of them reached the number one spot on the singles chart, including Hotel California, Heartache Tonight, and One of These Nights. After personal conflicts within the direction of the band and personnel changes, The Eagles, who were one of the most widely successful musical acts of the 1970s, decided to call it quits at the end of the decade. Though they disbanded at the start of the 80s, several members continued to achieve individual successes within the music scene. Joe Walsh and Timothy B. Schmidt continued to record and release their own music, as well as support other artists. Arguably, though, two of the more successful members and most recognizable were Don Henley, who established himself as a solo male artist with three albums released in the 80s, and the singles All She Wants to Do is Dance, The Boys of Summer, The End of the Innocence, and Dirty Laundry, as well as the second former Eagle to transform himself into a recognized solo artist being Glenn Frey. Glenn Frey, like Don Henley, also released three albums during the 80s, and also had successful singles True Love, 
Smuggler's Blues, and You Belong to the City. One of Glenn Fry's most successful recordings, though, was the popular song The Heat Is On, which is featured in the hugely popular soundtrack to the Eddie Murphy film Beverly Hills Cop. Glenn Fry plays guitar and uses a drum machine and synth to create an effective driving propulsion throughout the song, which supports the sense of urgency in his vocal delivery on the lyrics. The song opens with, The heat is on, on the street, inside your head, on every beat, and the beat's so loud, deep inside, the pressure's high, just to stay alive, because the heat is on. The lyrics in the song are somewhat ambiguous and non-committal toward the actual plot of the movie, but they do work if you imagine that the heat he's singing about refers to some high-stakes situation or a mounting pressure that a person might face. With the success of the film Beverly Hills Cop, a sequel was made a few years later, and also due to the success of the song The Heat Is On, Glenn Fry was approached as the original choice to record the song Shakedown for the sequel, but he turned it down and instead it became a number one hit recorded by Bob Seger. While we may not have gotten to hear Glenn Fry singing the chorus of Shake down, break down, take down, everybody wants into the crowded line. Break down, take down, you busted. We will always have Oh, 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 caught up in the action. I've been looking out for you. Oh, 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 tell me, can you feel it? Tell me, can you feel it? Tell me, can you feel it? The heat is on, the heat is on, the heat is on, oh, it's on the street, the heat is on, do-do-do-do-do, As the heat is on by Glenn Fry fades out, it will also inside A. I'll press stop on the cassette player and eject the tape. To recap, we open side A with Footloose by Kenny Loggins followed by Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now by Phil Collins. Next was I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman. Then Let's Go Crazy by Prince. And we ended side A with The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry. We're halfway there. Now I'll flip the tape over and press the pause, play, and record buttons and prepare to start side B, which will include selections released during the year 1985. I have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette and begin our playlist with the first song. Track 1 was released in March of 1985 and peaked at number 1 for one week on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Madonna, and the song is Crazy For You. The term vision quest is used to describe a ritualistic rite of passage that's usually only taken by adolescent males. It involves personal communication with the spiritual world through visions induced by fasting, prayer, and other means during a time of self-isolation. Although most often associated with Native American cultures, other individual indigenous cultures also practice these rites of passage, but may use different names to honor them. A vision quest typically involves solitude, nature, and fasting, which are believed to contribute to a person potentially experiencing a vision that will guide him into adulthood. First, seeking solitude requires a person to be alone, with no contact with the outside world, and to remove himself from social conversations, routines, and cultural roles in order to discover his authentic purpose. Next, nature involves leaving behind human-made environments like houses, roads, and villages, and returning to Earth's wilderness, which humans have grown and evolved from for ages. 
Finally, fasting creates a change in consciousness and broadens a person's ability to become less grounded in rational thoughts and more receptive to dreamlike or subconscious ones. The main character of the 1985 coming-of-age film Vision Quest isn't focused on spiritual enlightenment, but instead on winning a high school wrestling match at any cost against his state's undefeated champion. The plot follows high school wrestler Loudon, played by Matthew Modine, who falls for an older woman, Carla, played by Linda Fiorentino, who's traveling through Washington State on her way to San Francisco. The two develop an attraction to one another, which distracts him from his focus, causing conflict between them. The movie's supported by an amazing soundtrack featuring artists like Journey, John Waite, The Style Council, and Foreigner, as well as a memorable Madonna, which the film is memorable for by introducing her in the role of a club singer. She appears in the scene where Loudon and Carla visit a local bar, and as they flirt and drink, Madonna, looking like she just stepped out of her Lucky Star music video, is on stage enthusiastically performing the song Gambler. Even while performing on a low-lit bar stage amidst smoke and neon signs advertising Budweiser beer and Michelob light, she steals the scene without doing anything other than just being Madonna. After Gambler, she slows things down with the ballad Crazy For You, as various couples, including the film's leads, crowd the dance floor. The song opens with the verses, swaying room as the music starts, strangers making the most of the dark. Two by two, their bodies become one. I see you through the smoky air. Can't you feel the weight of my stare? You're so close, but still a world away. Prior to the song, Madonna had established herself as a successful dance pop artist with singles like Holiday, Lucky Star, and Borderline, but she hadn't released a ballad yet. Fearing she wasn't the right fit, the songwriters originally expressed hesitation at her recording the song, but changed their tunes after hearing her perform it. The instrumentation used within the song includes an electric guitar, snare drums, harp, and bass synthesizer as part of its music production, and it was also a new direction for Madonna's sound. It also uses the rich sound of the oboe at the start, which works very well to set the tone for the vulnerability she conveys in the vocal. While many consider it to be a love song, in my opinion, Crazy For You is actually about attraction. It perfectly captures that feeling of seeing someone across a crowded nightclub or at the school dance, and finding and mustering up the courage to approach them that everyone's felt at one time or another. The lyrics, trying hard to control my heart, I walk over to where you are, eye to eye we need no words at all. Slowly now we begin to move, every breath I'm deeper into you, soon we two are standing still in time. Now, whether the other person responded by holding you close in their arms on the dance floor or by rejecting you in favor of the arms of another were very real possibilities that could possibly happen. What I enjoy most about Madonna's vocals on the song are that while she conveys a nervous longing in the song's verses, she lets her confidence soar when it reaches the chorus when she sings, I'm crazy for you. Touch me once and you'll know it's true. I never wanted anyone like this. It's all brand new. You'll feel it in my kiss. You'll feel it in my kiss because I'm crazy for you. Touch me once and you'll know it's true. It's a notable song for many significant firsts in Madonna's career. It was her first song recorded for a film, 
her first ballad released, and her first song to earn a Grammy Award nomination. After the American Music Awards ceremony in January of 1985, legendary music producer Quincy Jones recruited a list of the most popular artists and musicians of the time to record the charity single as USA for Africa called We Are the World. This included several music superstars like Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson, and Tina Turner. Famously, several musicians that were huge superstars during the 1980s were not a part of the recording, with Prince saying thank you, no thank you, and Madonna not receiving an invite, allegedly because Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones felt that she was not the same caliber of an artist as the others who were asked to participate on the song were. Please. I remember watching the AMAs the night that they aired when Madonna, whose song Like a Virgin was at that moment in its sixth week as the number one song in the country, while she and Huey Lewis presented Prince with an award that everyone thought Michael Jackson was going to win. I refuse to believe that she wasn't a better choice than actor Dan Aykroyd or the various Jackson siblings, Randy, Marlon, Tito, Jackie, Jermaine, and LaToya. Madonna had hit singles, including her chart topper Like a Virgin. LaToya had nepotism. Incidentally, where was Janet? Ultimately, We Are the World did manage to peak at number one on the chart for a month before, guess what? Crazy for You by Madonna came along and knocked it from its hypocritical perch, proving to anyone anywhere that was questioning her caliber as an artist that the world was, in fact, crazy for her. As Crazy For You by Madonna fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 2 was released in May of 1985 and peaked at number 1 for two weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Duran Duran, and the song is A View to a Kill. Dr. No, the first film in the James Bond series, is notable for using an instrumental theme song to establish and support the film. That theme song would go on to become synonymous with the character and has been included in every film of the series since the first. While notable for establishing the character and the film using a theme that didn't include any lyrics, all subsequent Bond films would become known for incorporating a variety of musicians or singers or styles to support 007's latest cinematic adventures. To date, there have been 24 different songs featured as the theme song sung from a Bond film and the songs cover a wide range of artists and styles, with some of them seen as timeless triumphs and other as musical misfires. There's Shirley Bassey, who's the only artist to ever sing three different theme songs for three different films, including Diamonds Are Forever, Goldfinger, and Moonraker. There's experimental and unexpected theme songs like Paul McCartney's Live and Let Die, The World Is Not Enough by Garbage, and Die Another Day by Madonna. There's also more recent ones that are receiving praise, like No Time to Die, recorded by Billie Eilish, or Skyfall by Adele. Whether a fan of Tom Jones or Tina Turner, the Bond series has seen some of the most captivating and celebrated theme songs, as well as some serious head-scratchers used in the series. For whatever the reason, the 1980s is looked at as a polarizing period in the Bond films for many fans of the character mostly due to aging actor Roger Moore playing the role in three of the films at the start of the decade for which audiences felt too long and also that they lacked the panache of the earlier films, Bond was recast with actor Timothy Dalton as 007 in two films released near the end of the decade. However, the series was at its lowest point in its popularity overall at that point. 
There were five songs created and released from the Bond films during the 1980s, beginning with For Your Eyes Only by Sheena Easton, then All Time High by Rita Coolidge, next A View to a Kill by Duran Duran, The Living Daylights by Aha, and finally License to Kill by Gladys Knight. Of those five, and of the overall 24 songs from the films, only A View to a Kill peaked at number one on the Hot 100 singles chart. Could it be because it's a good song? Possibly. Could it be because it was sung by the biggest band in the world at the time? Absolutely. Duran Duran undoubtedly became one of the most successful and recognized bands who led the second British invasion in the United States during the early 80s. After receiving airplay success with singles Planet Earth and Girls on Film, at the start of the decade, the band then skyrocketed to fame when MTV premiered. With help from the channel, their trailblazing music videos for songs Hungry Like the Wolf, Rio, and Union of the Snake were seen as elevating the form of music video from average to artsy, with its rich cinematography, storylines, and emphasis on the physical features of each band member. After three successful albums, celebrated music videos, and several hit singles, Duran Duran reached the midpoint of the decade and decided to make a change in the direction of the band. At the beginning of 1985, they decided to take a hiatus from performing and recording material as Duran Duran in order to explore other side projects. First, bass guitarist John Taylor and guitarist Andy Taylor, along with English singer Robert Palmer and former Chic drummer Tony Thompson, formed the rock and pop supergroup called The Power Station. The band explored more rhythmic and aggressive music rooted in funk fused with rock and roll that saw two hit songs which both peaked in the top 10 of the US singles chart. The first was Some Like It Hot, and the second was Get It On, Bang A Gong. Meanwhile, the remaining members of Duran Duran, lead singer Simon Le Bon, keyboardist Nick Rhodes, and drummer Roger Taylor formed the new wave group Arcadia. Arcadia didn't stray too far from Duran Duran's relatable new romantic, new wave sound, and their song Election Day also peaked in the U.S. singles top 10. Prior to their self-imposed hiatus as a band, Duran Duran had been asked to write and record a song for the upcoming Bond film A View to a Kill, which they did, and which they watched soar to number one on the singles chart as it competed with and bested any of the singles that were released by the Power Station or Arcadia. My favorite part of the song is the enthusiastic chorus, which Simon Le Bon sings over the sounds of synth stabs against guitar riffs, drums, and a fantastic bass line. Dance into the fire. That fatal kiss is all we need. Dance into the fire to fatal sounds of broken dreams. Dance into the fire. That fatal kiss is all we need. Dance into the fire when all we see is the view to a kill. The song served as both a reunion of the band and a breakup record as, after the power station folded at the end of the year, John Taylor returned to Duran Duran, while Andy Taylor left for a solo career, and drummer Roger Taylor decided to retire from music. The band would carry on as a trio through the remainder of the 80s, but reunited in 2001 when Andy and Roger rejoined, reforming the original lineup and celebrating 20 years of Duran Duran's impact and influence in music. As A View to a Kill by Duran Duran ends, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 3 was released in June of 1985 and peaked at number 1 for two weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. The artist is John Parr, and the song is St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion. 
Though it might seem sometimes like I've seen every single movie released in the 1980s, there were a few that I didn't manage to see until later on in life. St. Elmo's Fire was one of those films. I remember I saw the film with my friends when I was in college in the early 1990s, and unlike them, I didn't really find it enjoyable or entertaining. The film's plot revolves around seven recent college graduates who navigate entering into the real world and attempt to grow independently, but wind up growing apart from one another as they strive for success in their careers, romantic relationships, and corporate connections. The film's title refers to the close-knit group's favorite hangout bar where, for the years prior to college graduation, they drank and dreamed about the future together, and occasionally Rob Lowe's character played sweaty saxophone solos with the bar band. Along with Rob Lowe, the film's cast was a collection of popular young actors at the time, like Judd Nelson, Andrew McCarthy, Ali Sheedy, Emilio Estevez, Demi Moore, and Mayor Winningham, who, in my opinion, were all better in other films. Where having multiple ensemble characters in films like The Breakfast Club and The Big Chill might have been seen as a challenge, those films made it work because every character was established and well-written, Unlike St. Elmo's Fire, which tries too hard to follow too many characters constantly one-upping one another on how poorly behaved or just extremely obnoxious they can be. For me, it was a three-way tie between Judd Nelson, Demi Moore, and Rob Lowe's characters that I found myself wincing at continuously anytime they were on screen. Though it took me almost a decade to actually see the film, I was aware of the song St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion by British rock singer John Parr. The song became a huge breakout hit, receiving major airplay on the radio, mostly due to its earnest, motivational message of overcoming adversity and moving forward despite the challenges in the path ahead. The song opens with the verses, Growing up, you don't see the writing on the wall. Passing by, moving straight ahead, you knew it all. But maybe sometime, if you feel the pain, you'll find you're all alone. Everything has changed. John Parr's raspy rocker voice provides encouragement like a coach cheering on an athlete in need of a pep talk as the lyrics continue in the song. Play the game. You know you can't quit until it's won. Soldier on. Only you can do what must be done. You know in some ways you're a lot like me. You're just a prisoner and you're trying to break free. As the music instrumentation swells around these lyrics, it then moves into overdrive with guitar riffs, synths, brass, and drum beats as John Parr sings the chorus. I can see a new horizon underneath a blazing sky. I'll be where the eagle's flying higher and higher. Gonna be a man in motion. All I need is a pair of wheels. Take me where the future's lying. St. Elmo's fire. The song sells the inspiring idea of never giving up and that tough times may get in our path, but you know what? We're tougher and we can outlast and overcome them. I've tried a few more times since college to watch the film St. Elmo's Fire, and I found that while I've changed with age, my opinion of the film, and especially that trio, hasn't. If anything, I used to think Andrew McCarthy was the cutest actor in the cast, but I came to discover that it's actually, and don't judge me, Emilio Estevez. As St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion by John Parr fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 4 was released in June of 1985 and peaked at number 10 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Cindy Lauper, and the song is The Goonies Are Good Enough. 
I remember attending a friend's wedding reception in the late 1990s where the DJ played a bunch of 80s dance songs in order to get the crowd moving on the dance floor. There were songs like Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley and also Love Shack by the B-52s as well as Tell It To My Heart by Taylor Dane. This worked as the dance floor became packed with people smiling and singing along with the songs and also dancing and just loving the moment. I should know because I was one of those people. In addition, the DJ also played Into the Groove by Madonna, which was then immediately followed by Girls Just Wanna Have Fun by Cyndi Lauper. Then the mood and the tempo changed when Right Here Waiting by Richard Marks came on and everyone that wasn't coupled up or prepared to slow dance with someone cleared the dance floor. I certainly wasn't prepared to hold anyone close as I attractively dabbed the sweat from my forehead and neck while making my way back with my friends Libby and Rob to our table. Somehow, after we sat down and I drank two giant glasses of water and began fanning myself with my hand, we started reminiscing about 80s music, and our conversation went into talking about the different career paths that Madonna and Cyndi Lauper had had. I remember saying that I loved them both for similar and different reasons during the 80s, but that there was always something about Madonna that just captivated me right from the start. It was also interesting to see and speculate how Madonna became such a huge superstar and Cyndi Lauper sort of fizzled out of popularity at the end of the decade. I'll never forget my friend Libby sitting right next to me at the table leaning into me like she was about to divulge some big secret and saying, I'll tell you why and even how it happened. It was those movie songs, she replied. I asked her what she meant, and she went on to say how in 1985, Madonna released the slow song Crazy For You, which was a big hit, and then shortly after, the song Into The Groove, which was also a big hit, and it came from a movie starring her called Desperately Seeking Susan. Meanwhile, Cyndi Lauper sang The Goonies Are Good Enough, which in Libby's words sounded dated compared to the other songs. I told her I didn't think that the song sounded dated, but it probably became one of her lesser known hits because it didn't pack an emotional punch like Time After Time or True Colors did, and it wasn't widely played like her up-tempo song Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. Personally, I don't mind The Goonies Are Good Enough, and especially like its hook and melody, and I also enjoy the message of the song about being content rather than making unrealistic expectations about life onto yourself. But I'll admit that the song doesn't stay with me after hearing it the way that I drove all night or change of heart do. I remember thinking how I couldn't exactly disagree with her because I remembered when those songs came out and also how Madonna was also promoting her second album Like a Virgin and she was just saturating pop culture and the world and we couldn't get enough of her. This sent her into the stratosphere of pop iconography, while Cyndi Lauper's debut album She's So Unusual, which was fantastic, had already run its course on singles at that time, and instead of recording new music, she chose to promote the World Wrestling Federation, or the WWE, as it's now known. It made sense that Madonna was skyrocketing and building a foundation of fans with her continual evolution of sound and style, but Cyndi Lauper was getting mired down and overshadowed by Hulk Hogan and the wrestling phenomenon, which looked completely uncomfortable for her. By the following year, when the two released albums containing the word true in the title, audiences showed appreciation for both, but soon Madonna's True Blue outsold and outperformed Cyndi Lauper's True Colors album, and it didn't help that the media continuously attempted to suggest a rivalry between the two, rather than celebrate that they were two female artists with two different personalities that appealed to many people. When I reflect on the ladies of the 80s that helped develop my passion for music, and whose voices were there supporting some of the most memorable moments of my life, you better believe Madonna and Cyndi Lauper are both involved.
Both women were celebrated because they were bold and outspoken in ways that influenced and inspired so many young men and women, as well as teenagers of different ethnicities, races, cultures, and backgrounds. They each had a charismatic presence that was impactful and demonstrated that any individual could be both into the groove and just wanting to have fun. As The Goonies Are Good Enough by Cindy Lauper ends, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the final track for side B. Our final track was released in October of 1985 and peaked at number one for four weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Lionel Richie, and the song is Say You, Say Me. There's no question that Lionel Richie can write and record a memorable ballad to stir emotions and convey feelings of love and romance between two people. Whether he's singing with the Commodores on songs like Three Times a Lady, Oh No, Easy, or Still, or he's on his own as a solo artist singing on songs like Hello, Truly, My Love, or Stuck on You, his voice captures the sentiment behind lyrics of longing for and loving another person. It shouldn't come as a surprise that knowing how well Lionel Richie can construct and craft a love song earned him notice from director Taylor Hackford, who asked him to write a song for his film White Nights. The film tells the story of a Russian ballet dancer's defection from the Soviet Union, played by real-life ballet legend Mikhail Baryshnikov, and an unlikely friendship that forms with an American tap dancer played by Gregory Hines. Lionel Richie was intrigued by the film's premise of friendship under unusual circumstances and the lessons learned about communication and compromise by each character, so he agreed to compose a song for the film. That song was Say You, Say Me, which is a soft R&B ballad that has all of the signature nuances that make Lionel Richie's ballads work. It has a light, almost airy musical arrangement that's simple and just allows the listener to get lost in his vocals and the lyrics. The chorus is simple and straightforward with him melodically singing, Say you, say me. Say it for always. That's the way it should be. Say you, say me. Say it together, naturally. The verses support the theme of friendship featured in the film and also about how to use it as a source of comfort and support when the light of life begins to darken around you. The meaningful lyrics are, As we go down life's lonesome highway, Seems the hardest thing to do is find a friend or two, that helping hand, someone who understands that when you feel you've lost your way, you've got someone there to say, I'll show you. What makes the song uniquely different from other ballads, as well as other Lionel Richie songs, is the change in tempo at the bridge of the song. After the second chorus of Say You Say Me, the song jarringly speeds up for about 20 seconds or so as he sings, so you think you know the answers. Oh no. Well, the whole world's got you dancing. That's right. I'm telling you. Time to start believing. Oh yes. Believe in who you are. And then the pace of the music slows back down as he sings the last verse. You are a shining star. Before it crescendos into the chorus before reaching the song's end. It's very different for sure, but it's effective at how it captures the sense of how relationships be they formed romantically or as friendships, can suddenly shift at any given moment from smooth sailing into rougher waters before they realign themselves to continue moving forward on. 
Say You Say Me went on to win the Academy Award for Best Original Song from a Film over the song Separate Lives, which is a duet by Phil Collins and Marilyn Martin that was also featured in the same film White Nights. Interestingly enough, Lionel Richie also competed against himself in the same category for the song Miss Seeley's Blues that he wrote for the film Color Purple. I guess losing isn't so bad when you lose to someone like a legend like Lionel Richie, especially when you're actually Lionel Richie. And we did it. We've completed our 23rd podcast playlist mixtape. I'll go ahead and press the stop button on the cassette player and eject our tape. To recap, we open Side B with Crazy For You by Madonna, followed by A View To A Kill by Duran Duran. Next was St. Elmo's Fire, Man In Motion by John Parr. Then The Goonies Are Good Enough by Cyndi Lauper. And we ended Side B with Say You, Say Me by Lionel Richie. I've labeled our tape movie soundtracks 84 to 85 on both sides and put it into our cassette tape holder for completion. I hope you enjoyed learning about the artists and songs featured on movie soundtracks from 1984 to 1985. You're playing so cool, obeying every rule, deep way down in your heart, you're burning, yearning for some, somebody to tell you that life ain't passing you by. I'm trying to tell you, it will if you don't even try. As always, I hope that you've enjoyed this experience as much as I have bringing it to you and that you'll continue to listen and support Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist as we celebrate the music and the memories of the greatest decade to live in and live through, the 1980s.